name's Tom Scott, as usual, with R.P. Eddy. R.P., um, I thought a lot about that conversation we had yesterday. I just want to touch on it for a moment. We had Chief Bill Bratton with us uh, at one time, Chief of Police of Boston, New York twice, and Los Angeles, major cities. Uh, as you pointed out, he's sort of a uh, the Michael Jordan, maybe, of police chiefs. Um, Without the personality you know, problem, apparently. We all learned about him, the recent Michael <laughs> Jordan stuff. But he's, you know, he's dedicated his life to policing. And, um, you know, we, we had the conversation um, for a variety of reasons, but certainly highly among them, the, the recent George Floyd tragedy and everything that's sort of followed since. Um, you know, I was impressed, first and foremost, I would say, with his thoughtfulness. You know, he's, he's a real historian, and I think he, um, he certainly comes across as somebody who, um, you know, uh, uh, respects the history of, of the job, recognizes many of the politics that come into play. I guess that makes sense. I guess that goes with the territory of the job. The thing I, we never did discuss, and I just want to talk about it briefly at the top here, um, is that effectively the President of the United States is the bedfellow of the police right now, symbolically, broadly, and the challenge that that brings them, which is to say he's not the, 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 you know, the, the steady hand, the thoughtful leader you want at your side in a moment of criticism. I mean, that would be my interpretation and my impression. Curious what you think about that and just any other reflection you may have on the, the show yesterday. Good to see you, Tom. First on that question uh, about Trump and the police, uh, I thought I had the exact same thought. Um, he, you know, he, there's very few people in America or in the world right now who want Trump as their noted bedfellow or ally, right? I mean, he's a person of uh, abject scorn from so many corners. You know, I mean, what are the numbers? Like 36% of America support him right now, meaning 64% don't, right? So if somehow you get lashed up with him, You've got two-thirds of America bearing down on you, so that's a problem. Um, and I found in social media conversations yesterday, which I never used to do on topics like this, but now I'm doing because I want to get people engaged with our show, um, that that was what was happening, right? People were all like, uh, um, actually, they were defending, one person we were chatting with was defending the police because they're defending Trump, meaning the opposite of this argument. So yes, uh, being affiliated with Trump is a losing proposition right now. Um, and by the way, it's a false proposition. It's a false proposition. There are not police chiefs. There's one police chief of note going around supporting Trump, and that's this guy David Clark from Milwaukee. Um, there are not police chiefs running around, A, being political generally, as Bratton was saying, a good police chief, like a good national security expert, like a good foreign defense uh, a diplomacy expert tries to not be political. So A, they're not part of the Trump MAGA world, so far as we can see. Um, but of course, he's supporting the police, right? So it's common enemy issue. Yeah, so that, that's a problem for them. They're getting drawn into all the hatred that we have for the president right now, uh, two-thirds of America, or at least let's say antipathy. A lot of that is also being shuttled right into the police department, and that's not fair to be to be clear. It's you know, there's very very concrete reasons that two thirds of America have a problem with Trump. There are very clear reasons a lot of America has problems with certain police departments and behaviors. 
but to mix the two together is probably not a probably not a proper condemnation. Yeah, I mean it's um you know, they are very specifically and clearly in in a hot seat that I'm sure is is really difficult and um you know, I think the other part of the conversation is you got some sense, I certainly got more of a sense of the complexity because it's it's huge. Like it's just hugely complex. And this would be my speculation. I think it's a pretty safe bet that when all is said and done, you know, a, a good majority of Americans are going to want police forces and probably police forces that are armed in just about every part of the country. Um, you know, they, I'm, I'm certain they also want police forces that respect, you know, people of all kinds, and they do it as gently and as, you know, nonviolently as they possibly can. Um, you know, again, that would, that would be what I would speculate, but in the interim, and I think it's a very safe speculation, but in the interim, the, the, the complexity of the politics of the matter, the, the social aspects of the matter, and then all of that relating to the technical process that they're going through as, the, as many of these things get reexamined, it's a lot to take in. It's just a lot to take in. You know, I wanted to also just add that the, um, you know, at the top of the show, I kind of outlined the position that I held. And I think I did it just to create some clarity and, and give us some room to have a conversation. Um, you know, it's a moment where people are very suspicious of, you know, kind of what side you're on and how you view these things and who are we defending and are you asking the tough question, like all those kinds of questions, you know, and, and there's some part of me that feels like I wish I didn't have to do that. And, and yet I'm glad I did. And, and when I say I wish I didn't have to do it, I stand by everything I said. But in some ways, some of what I said had to do with the interview and much of it didn't have to, anything to do with the interview. But I hope it was helpful in the net overall. Uh, for the day and for anyone who, for, for us on the show, but then also anyone who's watching. So just any thoughts you might have on that. I think we work really hard. And I'm not saying we do it well, but I think we have a, a goal to try to make our conversations as kind of fact-based um, and outcome-based as possible. Uh, meaning, and, and, I, and, and we, we, we notably criticize a lot of clickbait media who are trying to draw viewers in through fear or what I call micro media bubbling, like just telling you the story that makes you comfortable, one extreme or the other. Either you're just fine, you needn't change anything about you, you know, maybe let's call that like the MSNBC narrative to super liberals or the Fox News narrative to super conservatives. Like, you got it, you're fine. A, we, we, we don't want to be that, and or these these outlets, probably more Fox and MSNBC. I don't know. Also, try to draw people in by saying, you know, the things you hold dear are under massive attack. And I think you and I work really hard, and we do this explicitly and implicitly. We talk about it to not do that. And if you're going to set that bar for yourself, <clears throat> I don't want to make it sound like some, you know, like we're Olympians. But if you're going to set that goal then you probably have to do extra, extra explanation at times. So here we go in a conversation with Chief Bratton and uh, you know, with, with your great team, with Kristen and others, we spent some time preparing for this. He is a dear friend of mine and a mentor, and, and he was very gracious about introducing that. So right off the bat, you know, I think we were concerned with, oh, we're going to come across as pro-police, you know, as if there's a black and white line here or a blue and white line, right? and a blue and black line, I guess. And so we worked really hard to let him know 
on screen and then let the audience know, like, we're trying to come at this from a place of, there's probably better words than this, but like sort of honesty and rationality and non, non-emotional, non-biased thinking. Um, and that requires some doing, right? So I thought your, your intro was, was good in that regard. You know, we came in pretty clear on, on, on that, you did with your piece. And I, and I think looking at him that he felt that a little bit. He felt probably a little like, yeah, he knew it was not going to be an attack conversation. He knows that he and I are friends and I wouldn't do that to him. Um, but he also knows that I'm, I work really hard to be intellectually honest. And I think that's why we enjoy each other. Well, I saw, you know, overnight I saw a great video, which I highly recommend if anybody hasn't seen it. Maybe we'll play it here, but we can decide. Um, and it was made by the University of Alabama football team. And Nick Saban's in it. Many players are in it, um, black and white. And they essentially speak in clear support of Black Lives Matter. And um, it was really well written. And, I, and again, I, I, I'd let it speak for itself. Um, and in other words, I think you should watch it. it I loved it. I think it, it really well stated the way I feel about things and that this issue of race in America has my priority. I think that's sort of my, my most clear desire at the moment. And, and, and priority means a variety of things. It certainly means to me it, it's the place I'm going to place my energy. And it's the thing that I hope I can be helpful with um, in whatever ways I can, including this trip that we're doing down the Mississippi. Um, and all the while recognizing that I'm a white male in this culture, and we all were on that call yesterday, which does limit to some extent our ability to have perspective on all of these matters. Um, some of them we have very little, let's say, but many we, we may have much more. And, and in the end, we are who we are and we can do our best. And I, th I think it still has great value. But, you know, I, I think my strongest takeaway goes back to what I said before. I was just, I was really impressed with his thoughtfulness. And I feel like that kind of sort of steady view can make me hopeful. And I hope, I hope, and I guess it is the case that he is a role model for many in the, in the profession. Is that, is that the case? He is absolutely the role model for dozens and dozens of police officers. <clears throat> um, two quick thoughts. I've been very long winded. Sorry. One, um, we all grew up playing cops and robbers. We think we know what it means to be a police officer. It looks pretty simple. Um, but like anything, when you get to like the master level, you know, you're dealing with an extraordinary complexity. So if you think about those of us who are in business or have the privilege of leading businesses or groups, you know, you end up really being a therapist, right? So like, like a lot of leadership of groups is, is, is a, a family role fitting in a family and a therapy role. You just imagine that in a police department, right? Just the absolutely increased tensions, um, the, the very diverse work set, the, the heterogeneity of who's in there. So it's an extremely complex business. Part two, I, I think you and I said this when we were done, but I don't think we said it on the call. <clears throat> Knowing him as well as I do and working with him in some very high pressure situations, and that's where you really get the measure of a person, I think. I think we can say if every police department in the country was run by a Bill Bratton, we'd probably be in a much healthier world. Uh, but they're not. Much like every business isn't run by Tom Scott and every 
doctor isn't the best surgeon, right? So, um, you know, he is the epitome of, of what it means to be, in my measure, and there's a few of them. Ray Kelly is another one of extraordinary talent and regard um, that are considered great police chiefs. But it's really, Bratton is really the one with all the protégés, I think. And if they all were Bratton, I don't think we'd have a lot of the problems we have, you know? Um, and it's not, I'm not saying the mayor, you know, the police chief of Minneapolis at the time was the wrong police chief. Because as you talk about a lot, it's culture. Uh, and as he talked a lot about, it's culture. And as a lot of people who look at this policing talk about or changing the world or anything else, it's culture. And culture takes a long time to change. So it's not, hey, I'm the, I'm the leader right now. All of a sudden, the police department's going to be the right police department. It's what did you nurture and raise for sometimes generations uh, that you're now thrusting onto the public domain carrying a sidearm? Yeah. So, RP, let's talk about COVID. Um, a lot of news about COVID. And, 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 you know, it does seem there's a lot going on and, and that numbers are turning. I, I wonder, and I just, I'm, I'm speculating here, um, how much of this is about the need for news versus? No, this is no? real. No, 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 no. So it's real. Oh yeah. So it, say more. So, 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 so it's what we things are about. going wrong. So, you know, look, we, this disease became big, okay, starts in China. Two weeks later, it's in Italy. Two weeks later, it's in Seattle. Two weeks later, it's in New York. One week later, it's in Connecticut. Um, one week later, it's in Louisiana, New Orleans. And it begins this shotgun patterns march across America. And it grows. Uh, New York Times yesterday had a piece everyone should look at. It's one of their graphic pieces, and it shows the growth of disease. There's nothing particularly novel in there, but it, it lets you understand what logarithmic growth means and how this thing hit in a bunch of places at once. Um, what that, what, what we now know, I'm, I'm in the history first, then I'll get to today. What we now know about when the disease first made land in America is it hit in a bunch of spots in earlier February and was extant for a while before we were really had our lights on and certainly before we got our act together because we still don't have our act together, right? And that misstep by the CDC early on about having effective test kits was a big, big problem as well as many other things. So the disease starts in a bunch of spots. We, we're, not, we're not really paying attention to it. And, um, and then, you know, welcome to today, right? So we, have, we pay this huge cost to lock down. Here's the thing. We paid a huge cost to lock down. We destroyed the American economy for at least two years to lock down for a little while. And now, you know, what, two, three weeks ago, in a lot of states, we start to open back up. And then we start to open up in a couple, a couple weeks ago. Um, in the states that had locked down. And those states are doing pretty well, minus California, right? So New York, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts um, are doing pretty well. The rest, many other states in the country, which happen to be red states, Republican states, didn't do the lockdowns, whatever you want to call them. The, the, the technical term is NPI, non-pharmaceutical intervention. So it's Social distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, self quarantine, etc. Non pharmaceutical interventions. Many states didn't do them, as we well know. And there's some there's some stories that should go on these people's tombstones. The governor of Georgia is saying, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know there was asymptomatic transmission when the CDC is in his own state," as Nick Christakis explained to us. Um, you know, just just idiocy, like willful idiocy. 
And so the disease grows in a bunch of places relatively quietly. In the last two weeks, the disease has started to grow dramatically like it does in a bunch of states where it previously hadn't been a problem. So now I'm in Idaho. Idaho is growing rapidly. We were previously in Montana. Montana is growing rapidly. Um, uh, and, yeah, there's 27 states. So 27 states in the country where the disease is growing rapidly. Of most concern economically and from a density and a population perspective is Florida and California and Texas. Those three states are having problems now. And they're having problems because um, of, of two, two loki of leadership, right? One being the governors. Well, three. The president, of course, has abandoned leadership on this topic from the beginning. Huge failure. Um, that will be one of the marks of his presidency. Governors in those states, minus California, abandoned leadership on this or decided not to act. That will be a mark on their tombstones. And then as individuals, the compliance of wearing a mask and social distancing is much, much higher in those states I mentioned that have done well than it is in the states that are doing poorly. So now we have a number of states, 27, where the disease is growing very rapidly. So what does that mean? It means yesterday, and I think this is right, I, I, I thought I read this, but someone corrected me. Yesterday was the highest number of new cases in America since the disease started. And if we can confirm that while I'm talking, that'd be great. But I, I could have sworn I've read that. So we now are at, on a national basis, peak cases. Every day we have more cases than the day before, and we have more cases than we did during that panicked moment when first Seattle, then New York, were really in flames. And you recall, over 30,000 people died in New York alone. So it's, it's now across all the other states. 50 states have the disease, 27 are growing, and here we go. There is no good news, but there's a modifier to this. The disease appears to grow. So the, the, the magic number is, remember, the r not. So it's an R with like a zero, right? r not. The r not is in, you know, in a, they're actually the RT, but let's just make it simple. The r not is how much is the disease growing in, you know, your area at your time. So the r not in the states that are doing okay is, is around one, meaning one person gets it, they transmit it to one person. So it's linear growth. So if you have one person giving it to one person, giving it to one person, that's just linear growth. Um, and it possibly can be tested and traced and contained if we had a functioning public health service and in some states were approximating that. So that's no, no panic. One, a one, a one, two are not, you know, you can deal with that. Your hospitals won't get overwhelmed. You can kind of keep it. It's like a simmering fire and you can sort of keep it under control. And are not over one, one, two, one, three, one, four means one person gets it, they give it to one and a half people. An R-naught of two is when you start getting into, um, <clears throat> when you start getting into logarithmic growth effectively, right? One person gives it to two, gives it to four, 16, 32, 64. So the states having trouble have those higher R-naughts. They are not gonna experience, they are not and they will not experience the R-naughts that New York City had at its peak, which was a three, because they don't have the density of housing, they don't have as much public transport, in some states, not all people are outside in the summer, whereas in New York, we were inside in the winter. So we're not going to see that massive spike in Idaho, Wisconsin, et cetera, that we saw in New York. 
But on the aggregate across the country, the numbers are growing like they have never before. So here we go, real problem. And then you get to what do we do about it? But that's where we are. So there's, there's my explanation, a brief update of where we are with the disease right now. And, and I know the other day we looked at Texas, Houston in particular had sort of a critical moment and has a critical moment around availability of ICU space. Are we, is that happening in other places as well? Yes. Arizona is coming up on complete ICU capacity. Texas has already gotten to complete capacity in Houston and some other places. Um, and in rural America, we're rural meaning not, not urban, not suburban, but rural, right? So this is, you know, most people on this call are not in rural America, but, but millions of Americans are. Um, there are very few ICUs, like one per thousand. I don't know what the exact stats are, but there's not enough ICUs to actually deal with this. ICUs are intensive care units, right? So if you get sick, you go to the hospital, you sit in a bed. You know, if you get very sick, you go to the hospital, you sit in the intensive care unit. And those are expensive, complicated systems to build. And there's not that many, you know, in even a really major urban hospital. In a rural hospital, you're getting down to like one per hospital, um, one ICU. So they're going to get overwhelmed quickly too. And when people, obviously the progression of this disease is you, before you die, you probably are in an ICU. Some people obviously do survive the ICU as well. So yeah, we're, we're getting to that bed capacity issue in a lot of places, and that's a crisis. And by the way, just quickly, so, Brazil's absolutely on fire. India's having a real hard time. We mentioned that the other day. Sweden's not getting their case their, their cases under control. And and a thing just to remember, maybe it's like a drug addiction or something. Maybe it's like having a family of children and they start off with you know toying with a drug. Next thing you know. They're getting further and further into addiction. Like as it spirals, it spirals out of control fast. And in this instance with the disease, it's just mathematical, right? It just grows logarithmically. So when you have 30 cases or 300 cases, maybe you can deal with it. 3,000, 30,000, it gets so much harder. We've said it a few times. So any state who gives a shit is going to fight as hard as they can right now to put smart measures in place and deal with this. And smart measures would probably be enforced mask wearing. So some statistics. Um, so yeah, Thursday, yesterday, 37,000 new cases reported. Uh, and that's a new high. Okay, now I'm gonna speculate that that is in part due to more widely available testing, but let me get back to that because um, at the same time, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, suggests that the number of people who have been infected could be 10 times or approximately 10 times higher than the 2.3 million cases reported, which is to say 23 million people. Okay, now that phenomenon, if that's the case, there's a relationship between that number and the total number of tests given, which would, which would relate in some ways to why the number 37,000 was the highest so far. And I'm not suggesting that's the reason, but my guess is there's a mix of things happening here that make these numbers high. Is that true? The more you test, the more cases you'll find, the more people you can help. The better prepared you are to stop the disease. But 
this spike right now is a real spike of more people getting sick, more people are going to die. This spike is not, this spike is not just because we're doing more testing. The governor of Texas agrees with me. The governor of Florida agrees with me. The governor of California agrees with me. So two, two pretty red Republicans and one Dem. The president of the United States doesn't have a cogent point of view on it, but his argument is, gosh, every time we test, we find more cases, so I've asked them to stop testing. And as my 14-year-old son noted to me, that's like saying, if I don't test if you're pregnant, I won't have to worry about finding out you're pregnant. So that's obviously an idiot point of view. <clears throat> um, yeah, so we're testing more, we're finding more cases. There are also more cases. The disease is growing. And, um, and there, there is always, in every, every situation, there are always is this ratio of how many people are actually infected versus how many are you finding through testing. With this disease, that ratio is higher than in many other diseases because there's some percentage, we don't quite know the number and there's a lot of debate about it, but there's some real percentage of people who are asymptomatic or very low symptomatic when they get this disease. Meaning, you know, you can get the disease and not get the sniffles, but you still can be a spreader or you get the disease and you can have a mild cough and still be a spreader versus being in the hospital. I was talking with some experts yesterday and some business people, and I said, you know, it was confidential conversation. And I, I said this to be provocative, but I also think it's, it's sort of the policy position of many governors and certainly our president right now, which looks like this. So, okay, 130,000 dead today, 125. Um, probably 250,000 dead by October 1. That's the ergo model right now. 250 to 350. If we don't change, if we don't change, 250 to 350,000 dead by October 1. Um, and we've realized that the economic cost of the shutdown is dire and people die. People die from the economic shutdown alone, right? Businesses die, multi-generation businesses die, deaths of despair. We talked about this. So my provocative question was, you know what, what I see from these leaders, what I clearly see from this president is basically too bad. Like that's, that's a bummer, but we're going to let the old people die who largely die silently and in old folks homes. We're going to let. Um, the, the people of color die because we don't particularly care as much about them from a systematic point of view as we should. Um, because we just can't shut down the economy again because the cost was too high. We're barely going to survive this one economically. We can't do it again. So we're going to just jump on the wild stallion and bareback ride this thing and see what happens. Break some teeth, break some legs, but we're just going to do it. We're going to take the death. So I said, you think that's what's going to happen? Because that's what the leadership of this country is saying right now. We're just going to ride into the storm. And if the ship falls apart, you know, we'll still come out of it with some sort of a hole, although we would have lost a lot of crew members. How many analogies can I use here? And um, the business people basically said, yeah, that's probably where we're headed. Um, but a great, a great epidemiologist, a great expert on this disease said, oh, wait, there's two things you're missing. One. And we need to get the actual numbers here. He was speaking, you know, not, not in a peer-reviewed basis. But he said, uh, my understanding is that half of the admissions to hospitals are people under 65. Now, we know the lethality of this disease goes up by an order of magnitude as you go from 65 to 75 to 85, blah, 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 right? So we know this disease is, is logarithmically more deadly as you get older. Uh, unusual in that regard. Um, and... And so 
this this expert said to me, look, look, while we know that it's true that, you know, the 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 the, the fatality rate is much, much higher as you get older, you need to know that half of that hospital admissions are people under 65. So just think about how sick you have to be to be admitted to the hospital with a disease. Half of those people are under 65. Now, there, we still, that doesn't change the lethality rate. The lethality rate is still highly skewed to over 65, but we don't know what the sequelae is for this disease. We don't know what happens to you after you survive a serious bout. We just don't have enough science. But anecdotally, we know you can have lung scarring and reduced lung capacity for the rest of your life. You can have kidney damage, you can have brain damage, you can have heart damage. So all those survivors, right, come out the other end who are in this instance under 65 could be some way scarred for life. So that's worry, worry number one. Worry number two is, again, we have to get the right numbers. He said, and about a quarter, about a quarter of hospital admissions are people in their 40s and below. Holy shit, I didn't quite realize that. That's a big, big number, right? So those are part one. Part two, he mentions, is, and you know what else? Healthcare workers are not going to take this anymore. Hospitals are getting overrun. Healthcare workers are being put in a position of extraordinary danger. They are not drafted military, you know, military fighters who either have to go to the line of fire or they get shot in the back by the officer. You know, doctors do not have to show up. Nurses do not have to show up. And when you add, I spoke with the commissioner of health in a major state or in a U.S. state yesterday, and she got emotional telling me that even in a state in the United States right now, they do not have enough PPE to protect their healthcare workers. My God, they literally don't have the masks they need to protect their healthcare workers as this virus is growing in their state and they're, they're not alone. So, um, so, so my concept of like, oh, we're just going to ride into the storm and we'll take the losses. We'll be at 300,000 dead in October uh, and we'll just keep waiting until we get a vaccine or we get really good therapeutics. I was told uh, you're, you're ignoring some realities here, right? Younger people are getting quite ill. Healthcare workers are going to get exhausted and are going to protest. Hospitals are getting overloaded. And here's the final point. What's it mean when people under 65 start going to the hospital? It means your economy shuts down anyway, right? The entrepreneurial class, the productive class of America, of any country, is actually the folks who get it done, the workers, are under 65. So if they start getting really sick as well, the economy shuts down anyway. So we have got to take this seriously. We have got to stop politicizing mask wearing. We have to stop being idiots about this, or we're all going to have to go back to our homes. We're going to get locked up. The economy is going to collapse anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there, and and, and um, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and it's the question of what is the narrative, and I think the narrative, um, must be said. I would like to think it's said by very high authority, um, and some of it, I think, maybe maybe most of it is emotional sociological just here's how you should think about conducting your life in such a way that we can come out of this thing best because i think you know the way it, a lot of people think about it is either we're locked in our houses or we're going back to work i guess the middle ground is masks and six feet or something like that but there's more to it than that there's 
here's exactly what we can expect. Here are some of the emotional thing, you know, bridges you're going to have to cross. Here are ways you can be helpful to the rest of the culture. And maybe those things, I'm sure they do, change from time to time. And a regular update on those things would certainly be nice. So just as an example, does that 250000 I mean, I guess you're assuming that we're sort of continuing as we are. And I, and I think you're also assuming that we're going back to school in the fall. And then when we say school, are we talking about elementary schools? Are we talking about colleges? Are we talking about what are we talking about? You know, there's the questions of um, who's going to work when. I, I, I told you, I, I spoke to a woman yesterday in New York, and she's like, you know, the moving trucks are all over her block. People are moving out left and right. And, the, you know, they're, they're really changing their lives. So there's a whole lot going on. And to the extent that some of that narrative was more easily shared, the better. One of the things I said to my team this morning is associated with this trip that we're doing. I said, you're going to hear a lot about the disease right now. And let's not panic. If we feel like it's dangerous to go on our trip, we won't go on our trip. Between now and then, we got to keep our heads. And, and look, part of it for me was I did a trip. I began on May 5th. I did it when certain states were closed. And my, this is just my relatively unscientific observation is you, you can lead a pretty simple life with limit, limited exposure to the general public if you make really smart choices. If you think it's over and it's time to go to a bar again, you got another thing coming. And again, I think a, a narrative on that on a regular basis from leaders, man, would it be helpful. I mean, what you just said to me was very helpful. Because I, I knew some of that. I didn't know all of that. And it gets lost in the ether because there's no central place to sort of establish a lot of these thoughts. I, um, I, um, I have a lot of thoughts based on what you're just saying, Tom. <clears throat> Do we need leaders? We are the only country I know of. Maybe Brazil's doing this. I don't think so. I think we're the only country where wearing a mask... Oh, sorry, we're the only country where the disease is a political question. So there's lots of countries where there's debate about what do we do about the disease? You know, in Sweden, there was a debate about should we just try to get to herd immunity or not? And we've talked about that a few times. <clears throat> and, and, you know, in Germany, there was questions about how much we locked down. In Serbia, there were questions about should we sequester the old people or not? Like lots of questions about what do we do about it? What's the appropriate response to it? But in no country is there a debate about what is it? There are very smart, meaningful people in America still arguing this is a bad flu. They are fucking wrong, right? But we are having these conversations. It's a bad flu. No, it's not. Um, I, I almost shouldn't even use those words. Like, it has to just get out of our mind, right? So this is the only country where we're debating about almost the existence of the disease. Of course, some people say it's a hoax. Those are idiots. They're not worth con considering. But there are other people in this country who are who are still completely downplaying the biological realities of the disease. That's happening nowhere else in the world. Nowhere. Now, is there a silver lining? And I mean, talk about a horrible thing. Is there a silver lining that the rest of the country is beginning to get, becoming to get, beginning to get hit by this disease? Is the silver lining that the red states are now going to see more people die and they're going to wake up to, all right, all right, all right, I get it. It's a real disease. Now let's talk about solutions. Maybe. Um, and we're beginning to see that the governor of Texas, Abbott, who has been adamant for a long time about doing nothing about the disease. And then he got forced into doing something about the disease by the biology of it is now saying, all right, we got to we got to slow down our openings. Florida, same story. Another another governor who's changing his tune in face of what's happening with this single strand of RNA that's ripping havoc through our country. 
So will we kind of get that and stop screwing around with the politics? Maybe. Will that mean we have leaders who say wear masks? I don't know. Donald Trump's not going to tell you to wear a mask. But as you said before, 64% of America doesn't listen to the guy anyway. So, and by the way, mask adherence appears to be around 86%. Uh, I'm not sure what that is a basis on. It's a number I saw. Now, while we're talking about that, you need to have 90% adherence for it to work. Uh, an 89 is a fail. 90 is a D minus, right? Um, so 86 is a fail. So if we had leaders who came out like we have in every other country that said this is a real deal, we have to take it seriously, we'd be in a very different situation. We know that for sure. So what, what do you do with the calculus? Well, it gets back to you and me. And that's my point on your trip. I, you can certainly do your trip safely. Um, you can certainly travel around this country safely. Um, now, there's a whole group of Americans who can't, right? They have to go to work. They're healthcare workers. They're critical workers. Uh, those folks have a much harder time than, than you're going to have on your trip. But you can do this trip safely. I can give you my view on how you could do it. But you doing this trip safely from the disease could be part of the story you tell as well. Obviously, you're doing it to talk more about race. But it might be interesting to understand, you know, I mean, I, you know, I went to the Home Depot the other day in Idaho and pretty high compliance of mask wearing. One very... One big dude, I'm a big guy, I'm 6'3 and heavier than I like to admit. This guy must have been 6'6", 300 pounds, um, had a beer in his hand, <laughs> a little inebriated, stumbling around the Home Depot without a mask on, and people were responding to that. So I was happy to see that like that was an outlier behavior. Um, and a lot of other people had masks on. Um, so that's just a side note. but. You know, you can do your trip safely and and maybe as you do it, you can remind us and what you'll go through on that trip is what you went through in your previous trip. And what we went through on this trip is it, it, it's it's a pain in the ass to wear a mask. It's a pain in the ass to be panicked about washing your hands. It's a pain in the ass to not get to hug somebody. Um, and, you know, my will and that of my children and my wife, like, kept getting tested in this trip um, until the news keeps reminding us. And imagine how much it tests your will when you don't believe the disease is real. So when we get to a common established establishment that the disease is real, <clears throat> hopefully we'll get a little less stupid about how we deal with it. So I, I go to my gym now every day. Um, I go, I go to a class is what I go to. Um, I never, I'm outside. And, and it's me and one other guy every day who are outside and everybody else is inside. And um, I carry a squirt bottle of alcohol. And if I have to grab a weight or whatever inside, I go in, I spray it, I whop it, I go outside and I, I do my thing. Now I bring it up because everybody else doesn't. And I look at them, I'm like, man, like, why do you guys go in there without masks? I mean, this is not like a gigantic gym. I'm gonna guess this is, 4,000 square foot gym, and there's like 10 people in there. And I just think like, what's the benefit for being in there? Now, a lot of them will say it's hot. And I just don't care about that. But, but, the, but when I watch it, I think the reason they're doing that is because the state's letting them do that. Now, I don't want to point a finger at the state because I, you know, well, maybe I do, maybe I do. But that's where they're getting their evidence. And I think if you understand spittle flying around in closed spaces is, is the danger 
And by the way, spittle flying around anywhere is the danger. But if you're outside, the spittle thing, it, it just dissipates or whatever the right word is far more. And then if you have a mask on or if you're really far from somebody, you're in pretty darn good shape. Well, there's the answer. And that's why that's how I think about the trip. I mean, the other thing I would say is on the trip that I made before, the assumption was that whether I whatever Joe had, I had that was the bottom line. We were going to get our Corona together. Yes or no. The rest of the trip, the assumption was that every other person we came into contact with had Corona, and so did we. And literally the one place it was, well, I guess there's two places. One would be the lobbies of the hotels when I just zipped in and out, or like a Starbucks. You know, that would be the only places where I was anywhere near people in a closed space. And in each case, I wore a mask. And in each case, the minute I left, the hands were getting washed with alcohol every time. And so I felt relatively safe. I'm surprised that doesn't happen more. And, th and that is how I think about the trip. And it's how I think about life. I mean, I went to our office this morning. You know, it's a bummer to sit, pay rent on a place and just look at it setting empty. But that's what we're going to do. Was it a pain in the ass to have those compliant behaviors during your trip? No, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. But you're a hugger. Yeah, I mean, I miss, I miss that stuff for sure, but I don't know. It's the summer. Like, I, I'll be outside as much as anybody wants. I'm fine with it. Just to, like, I, 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 you know, you exercise to increase your heart rate and your aspiration. Like, by definition, exercise is you are breathing harder and faster. By definition. To do that indoors with other people is the definition of stupid. I, I, I do not understand why indoor gyms are... Uh, open in places that have high endemic disease, you know? So if you're on a private Island with hundred people and they all test negative, then, you know, go slobber all over each other. But, and in Connecticut where I think your gym is, or maybe it's in New York, you know, you, we have in Connecticut, the lowest RT, which is a R not at time for a number of weeks running right now, which is amazing. Uh, if you consider how bad the disease was there meaning you can have a little bit of confidence there's less endemic disease around, but it's still there. So indoor gym, bad idea. Outdoor gym, risky, but do it safely. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I think this, uh, I think it's time for us to sort of re-engage. That's what I, that's my takeaway. I mean, you were talking about the, like the business posture of some of the people on the call. Um, you know, my own view is I'm going to be as safe as I possibly can. And I hope the people I work with are in the same position. Um, and I just hope that whatever behaviors any of these businesses, you know, employ, that they, they do it in a way that it's most safe for everybody. Um, but, I, but on the other hand, I, I just want to say sympathetically, like, I don't, I'm not sure what other choices these guys have. No, I, I'm not. Look. We got to get back to work. And there's a lot of businesses, a lot of workers who don't have the luxury of being distance workers. We just to be super explicit. Scary. Unlike every other industrialized Scary. nation. Sorry. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> just to be super explicit. Unlike every other industrialized nation in the world, minus Sweden, um, we blew our chance to contain the disease. And uh, we paid a huge cost because we got into it too late. Our economy got crushed. 
We had the highest unemployment we've had in generations. And we still didn't really do it right. We do not have the luxury of doing that again. We can't shut down. We really can't. So we have to find another way out. And the, the way out's going to be double the number of people dead, unless some miracle happens. Um, in all cases. Now, maybe not by October 1, but it'll, it'll you know, until we get a vaccine. If, thank God, we get one. And so what we're going to have to do is really get into wearing masks. Really get into social distancing. Really get into being safe. And if we do that properly, a mask can protect you. A mask can protect people around you. And we can knock this thing down. But it will require really high compliance. Because we can't, we have to get back to school. We have to get back to work. And I would just remind you of something we talked about a couple shows ago, Tom. So here we are in, what, the end of June? I think last week I said August, September, October, November will be the hardest months in recent American history. And we thought last month was crazy. We had a show where we talked about, was this the craziest week you've ever experienced? And that was, I think, about three weeks ago. Just wait. Now, I said... August, September, October, November. No, I said, I said September, October, November. It might, it might be accelerating to August, right? We've got flu season. We've got school openings. We've got this unbelievably contentious presidential election coming. Uh, and we've got a fucking pandemic, pardon my French, so um, that we're not handling. And where America is the world epicenter, America is handling it more poorly than any country in the world. Um, and so things are going to get a whole lot crazier here before they get less crazy. But we still have to get to work but we still have to get to school. So the more craziness we can inject into this, the worse it'll be. The more we can listen to the guy in the Oval Office telling us not to wear masks, the more people will die. The worse the economy will be. Whatever it is you care about, money, life, joy, seeing other people, that gets worse uh, as you wear, as you don't wear a mask. That gets worse as you listen to divisive political leaders. It gets better as you lead on your own. And we're going to have to do I that. Add, I want to add a note of history which is um, if you look at the disease types, epidemiologists, et cetera, and you just go back to where this started to where we are today, they have a history of calling it right, right? Like it was going to disappear around Easter at one time. Like there's been a lot of things that people say, a lot of miracles that were going to happen and the epidemiologists and, and others in, you know, like fields, RP, who's, you know, is, is an expert in and of himself. I think it would make sense to pay attention to these people. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on the hopes all the time. I would bet on sort of some of the realities. And, you know, and, and it really is sort of silly in, that this has somehow become political. Um, you know, one of the things Dan pointed out, like if people don't believe in wearing masks to help others, well, it's good for you, too. It lessens your chance of getting the disease, too, to wear a mask. It's not just about protecting the other person. If you prefer that method, your health will be better handled if you if you wear a mask in situations that require it. Yeah, I'm not an expert epidemiologist. If I'm an expert, this topic is on policy. But I've been around a bunch of smart ones and I've learned to listen to them. Um, and yeah, this isn't their first rodeo, right? So yeah, they, they, they were pitch perfect. Just remember like two months ago, what was the guy? There was a, um, a Wall Street analyst, I think it was JP Morgan, wrote a piece that every capitalist loved. 
and it said, this is totally overblown. Here's a bunch of stats. One of the studies that he put up was from a marine oceanologist, a marine oceanographer, who was commenting on the disease. And that was the first study this guy put in his J.P. Morgan stock, you know, stock announcement, his, his financial essay. And it was just wrong, right? Uh, but we really want, you know, hope springs eternal, but sometimes hope can get you killed. So that was an error. Um, these, these epidemiologists aren't, and then there was a lot of people saying that epidemiologists are trying to become celebrities. What? Jesus, like they're, they're pretty introverted group. They're just trying to help. And, um, we would have done well to listen to them early and we didn't. So, so now we are deep, deep into it. We're up to our eyeballs and disease and we're going to pay a really high price to get ourselves out. Let's just see if we can minimize it. And like, ultimately everyone, you know, you got to protect yourself. And if we all protect ourselves, we'll be fine. Literally, if everybody wears a mask properly, it will go away. And I think a lot about something, you know, seatbelts, right? You obviously wear a seatbelt to protect yourself. And Kristen was running us of this. No one's got a problem with seatbelts. No one's got a problem with stopping at red lights. Protects you or protects others. Yet somehow a mask is this huge muzzle problem people are freaked out about. A seatbelt also protects other people in the car, right? So you protect yourself with a seatbelt. You also prevent yourself from being a projectile bouncing around the car, killing other people with your head hitting their head, right? So a mask protects you. It protects other people too. And we'll talk about masks and people are going to get sick of it, but find a good mask. Find a good mask. Wear two layers of cloth on your face. Put effort into getting something good on there. If you can get an N95 mask, wear it. You probably can't. If you can get a KN95 mask, wear it. You probably, probably can. If you can wear a cloth mask with a couple layers, wear it and, and wear it. And it will protect you and it will protect others. So I feel very preachy today, Tom. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad I asked it the way I asked it because I was truly curious. I, I was wondering, you know, is this just a blank in the news and they need something? But no, the answer is no. And it makes sense to me that it's not. When do you leave on your trip? We leave on the, well, the 21st, 22nd is the first event. I mean, we leave between the 17th and the 21st, depending on who you are. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's necessary. I want to be respectful of anyone who feels unsafe in any way, for sure. But I feel like it's something that um, is needed. So I want to make it happen. Well, like Kristen said, right, you stop at red lights, you wear a seatbelt, you know, we've learned not to litter. These are all things we've learned to do that work for ourselves and for others. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to start doing it. And you got to lead on your own. You got to find a good mask. So great to see you today, Tom. Thank you. Mm -hmm.